Father, um, we come before you this morning, um, gathered as your people, eager to hear from you, to um, behold um, your glory and your word. And we claim the promise that, uh, Lord, you have exalted your word above all your name and that your word um, will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent out, that it will not return to you void. So I pray that, that um, as we go to your word now, Lord, despite my weakness, despite my inability to, um, Lord, to do any justice to uh, the majesty uh, that is here, um, Lord, I pray I would get out of the way and that um, the word would speak to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're continuing our um, survey through the Old Testament, and I feel like, very honestly, after spending time in Isaiah, um, saying that we're going to do a quick survey through this book is like saying that we're going to take a walking tour over Mount Everest. There is so much here, so much depth of meaning. So let's take a walking tour over Mount Everest in 45 minutes. Um, but before we make our ascent, there are some preparations I think that we should make, some tools that we'll need to use. Um, first is to the answer to the question, who was Isaiah? What do we know about him? Um, far from the sort of I guess, prototypical picture that we may have of a lone man in the wilderness, Elijah-type prophet. Isaiah was actually a high-born, high-ranking member of the Judean aristocracy. Tradition tells us that he was cousin to the king Uzziah, and he was court prophet to Uzziah, as well as four kings that came after him. Now, this was in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem. He was a highly educated man. Um, and we see evidence of this by the fact that he uses a broader range of vocabulary than any other Old Testament biblical author. He's a man uniquely gifted and equipped by God to serve at a critical turning point in history. He was a husband. He was a father, he was a poet, a teacher, a historian, and at the end of his life, even a martyr. But most importantly for us this morning, he was a prophet. One commissioned by God to deliver his word. He was a messenger. As well, Isaiah was a seer, meaning that he would be delivered by God messages about what he would do in the future and why. So this book of Isaiah is really a collection of those messages that he received and that he delivered during the course of his 50-year ministry, during the course of his life. And they are in the form of songs, of poems, of sermons, and of historical accounts. But this book really is not about Isaiah, nor is it about Israel 
even. Ultimately, the book of Isaiah is about God and what he reveals that is true about himself through the words of these prophecies. So let me encourage myself and each of you as we go through the book to continually be asking the question, what do I see in these prophecies that is true about God and about his priorities? So we said that these prophecies of Isaiah, they were messages from God, and they were directed to specific individuals and to specific people groups. And this is one of the first keys to understanding this book is to pay attention to who it is that Isaiah is addressing each of these messages to. And that requires a historical awareness, context. And there's information that can provide that context that we find actually back in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Um, So who is Isaiah speaking the message to? What is going on? We said Isaiah served during the era of Israel's history we call the divided kingdom. Um, So you have the ten tribes of Israel in the north, referred to as Israel, and the two tribes in the south at Jerusalem that are Judah. And that is where Isaiah served. So many of the messages are directed to to the kings of Judah under whom Isaiah served, We also have messages addressed to Israel, the northern kingdom, to Syria, to Egypt, to Philistia, Assyria, Edom, Moab, Persia, Babylon, and beyond that to the nations, which pretty much covers everybody. The true scope of Isaiah's intended audience is literally every living person from the moment that he put his pen to papyrus until the end of time. This comprehensive aspect of Isaiah's prophecies across human history should tell us something. It tells us that the truths that are revealed in this book are relevant today. They are relevant across the entire span of human history. God has not changed. God's priorities have not changed changed. And what was true about him in 500 BC is true today. So we are among Isaiah's intended audience this morning. We should pay attention. Some other keys to understanding the messages that we find in this book. We already mentioned historical context, who Isaiah is speaking to. Um, We also need to be aware of certain interpretive challenges that are present in this book. We should understand that Isaiah is not Nostradamus looking into a crystal ball. These are not predictions. These are living words from God, and they're not simple. They are fulfilled in incredibly complex ways um, with multiple layers of meaning. So each of these prophecies may have a near fulfillment, something that's going to happen chronologically soon, They as well may have a far fulfillment, something to to happen in the future. And many of them as well have a final fulfillment at the last time. So this is something we need to be aware of, this complexity and this progressive 
uh, fulfillment that is present in the book. As well, um, throughout Isaiah's prophecies, uh, we see something that biblical scholars refer to as prophetic foreshortening. Um, is there anybody here this morning who is uh, maybe a, an amateur photographer? No? My wife, Tally, thought that that was going to be her, her new gig for a while, and so she, she begged and pleaded for a, this beautiful Nikon camera for Christmas. And it came with all these, you know, huge lenses. And one of the lenses that she would never use just because she didn't want to be thought, you know, a, a tourist or nerdy or whatever, but this giant lens known as a telephoto lens. And if you know what a telephoto lens is for, it's for looking at something that is far away and for bringing into sharp focus something way off in the distance. But the effect that that has is um, other things in the field of view that might be closer to you or very close um, the, the, the distance between them is compressed in the image. And you're not necessarily clued in to, as to how far away things are from you. And there is really a, uh, uh, an effect very much like this um, in the book of Isaiah. He often will just go straight from describing something that could be happening in 10 years to something that may come to pass in 100 years or even 1,000 or thousands of years. And we're not always given... Uh, we're not always clued into that fact. So prophetic foreshortening is, is another um, interpretive challenge, something we need to be aware of. Um, as well, the, the prophecies of this book also have um, layers of fulfillment that, that range from literal to spiritual. Um, so there, there might be a more narrow and physical reality that is being referred to, and at the same time, a broad, overarching spiritual truth that we can apply. So let's begin in chapter 1. Oh, one other thing that I wanted to mention. Um, as kind of a basic outline, the book is divided into three separate divisions. Chapters 1 through 35, dealing primarily with what we would call the judgment prophecies. Chapters 36 through 39 are historical narratives that form a sort of parenthesis between the two main prophetic themes of Isaiah. The first one, as we just said, being that of judgment. And then chapters 40 through 66 are what we would call the salvation prophecies or the peace prophecies. So now we look at chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised 
the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. One of the primary concepts that we see throughout this book is that of judgment. And in chapter 1, court is in session. The Holy One of Israel will be judge, jury, plaintiff, and witness for the prosecution. So in verses 1 through 4, you see the charges being read against Israel, against Judah. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. He's calling to witness the entire universe to the justice of what he is about to do. In verse 4, we read, They have despised the Holy One of Israel. This title is very, very important in the book of Isaiah. It is one unique to Isaiah, used 25 times here and only five times elsewhere in the Bible. And it is intended to contrast God's holiness against the sinfulness of the people of Israel. And this title that is used over and over again and again, together with Isaiah's vision of God in chapter 6, in his holiness and in his glory, are the key, the central theme of this book, God's first priority. And that is the awesome display and demonstration of his holiness and his glory before the entire universe. It is this truth, this reality about who God is. He is holy. He is infinitely separate from sin that underpins everything that is said and done by God in this book. So let's continue reading in verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So here we see the penalty the penalty will be judgment and desolation. We need to understand that this is not a reactionary response from God. This doesn't come out of nowhere. He is doing exactly what he said that he would do when the people broke his covenant. Let's go back and read. I want to turn to Deuteronomy in chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verses 23 through 27. Moses warns the people. He says, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When your father, children, and children's children have grown old in the land, If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish 
from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. So it's interesting. You see, in this warning and in the warning from Isaiah 1, this call to witness what is going to happen, it signifies the justice of what God will do in bringing desolation to the people for their sin. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This concept of God as a consuming fire and as a jealous God is also a key theme borne out throughout the book of Isaiah. And we'll expound on it a little bit later as we continue through the book. So let's look at verses 11 through 15 in chapter 1. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. So this message is intended for all of pre-exile Judah, but it was delivered during the reign of King Uzziah. And if we look at the books of Kings and Chronicles, we learn that during Uzziah's reign, Uzziah was a man who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And idolatry would have been illegal at this time. So the, the sacrifices and the offerings um, being made at what were called the high places were not yet open idolatry or worship of pagan deities. What is happening at the time that this, this, um, this accusation is laid out is called worship of Jehovah. The people were, were making sacrifices at what were called high places. These were, these were shrines that were, were local to every city and every settlement and they were after the fashion of the Canaanite shrines to their gods. Um, and this was in direct disobedience to God's command that worship and sacrifice was to take place exclusively at the temple. But they were convenient. Um, the people wanted to worship God, but they wanted to worship him on their own terms, which did not include obedience to the Ten Commandments. Had you asked them, they likely would have said, God is important to me. I want to worship God. They wanted him to be part of their lives. They just didn't want him to rule their lives. But God calls this out as an empty, ritualistic facade to cover a corrupt and decaying culture of sin that would eventually lead to open idolatry. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Does that sound familiar? So in verses 16 through 20, we see the call to repentance. God warns, and he calls to repentance. So then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, uh, let's begin reading in verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the high, as the highest of the mountains, 
and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So in chapter 2, Isaiah sort of abruptly shifts gears. He's gone from a near-fulfillment prophecy of judgment to a far-fulfillment prophecy of restoration and deliverance. And throughout the book of Isaiah, you see this duality constantly. You see these two um, revelations of God in his judgment and in his salvation. And he is glorified in both. His holiness is seen in both. Desolation and deliverance. So we see this refrain repeated again and again and again throughout Isaiah's prophecies. God's glory is on display, and it is demonstrated in judgment and in salvation. So the latter part of chapter 2 and then chapter 3 are words of judgment again as God condemns Judah for their rebellion against him. He describes in striking imagery the consequences that will come because of their sin, and he foretells the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian kingdom in 586 B.C. Then in chapter 4, we see a word of hope, a message to the remnant that God will preserve in the land, the faithful remnant, and he tells them how his presence and his glory will return to Jerusalem, and it will be there as a cloud by day and a fire by night, just as in the days of Moses. Chapter 5 is a song of lament, a song of warning from God to both Israel and to Judah. It speaks of how the people have despised and rejected God's law, and how because of this, he will summon faraway nations to strike this rebellious and unrepentant people. This prophetic song would be fulfilled in the northern kingdom in 722 BC when the Assyrian king would come, conquer Israel, and carry off its people. And then again in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar would besiege and conquer Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry its people into exile. So then we come to chapter 6. Chapter 6 is a staggering revelation of God's glory and his holiness. Let's read in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And we see Isaiah's response to this revelation of God Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's confession here 
is the only correct response that sinful men can have when confronted with the glory of who God is. This is how Israel, this is how Judah should have responded. And then verse 6 and 7 are beautiful foreshadowing of God's grace and forgiveness in the removal of sin available through atonement. So chapter 7 jumps ahead 16 years from the vision that Isaiah had of God and his glory in chapter 6. We jump entirely over the reign of Uzziah's son, Jotham, to Uzziah's grandson, King Ahaz. So when Ahaz ascended to the throne, Judah's downward spiral escalated very quickly. At first, he does put on a show of outward service to God. But very soon, he begins to incorporate pagan practices into the worship of Yahweh. And in the interest of forming a political alliance with the power at that time, the king of Syria, eventually Ahaz goes all in, setting up idols to false gods in Judah. Idols of the surrounding nations in the high places. And he leads the country into open idolatry. We read how Ahaz even goes so far as to sacrifice his own infant sons in worship to these false gods. So in Isaiah chapter 7, what is happening, we see how the ruler of the northern kingdom, King Pekah, 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 is it Pekah? Um, yeah, he forms this alliance with the king of Syria to make war against the southern kingdom of Judah, against King Ahaz. And Ahaz suffers a massive defeat at the hands of this army where 120,000 men die in one day. His army is decimated. And they retreat to Jerusalem. They're besieged by their enemies of this northern alliance. So chapter 7 is a message that God sent Isaiah to give to the king Ahaz at this time. We read in chapter 7 how the people, along with the king, were so afraid in their hearts, it says their hearts shook like trees before the wind at this army coming against them. So Isaiah comes to them, and he has some good news, and he has some bad news. Um, The good news is, God says basically, Ahaz, you're afraid of these kings. You're afraid of this army. When the one you should be afraid of is me. He says, I'm going to give you a sign that in a very short while, this northern kingdom is going to be absolutely obliterated. They will have no power. Their plans will not stand. And the sign was the sign of Emmanuel. So in chapter 7... Let's look there briefly. Verses 14 and 16. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil, 
and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So this is, this is a clear example of the progressive fulfillment that we were talking about and the literal, physical, near fulfillment as well as the spiritual and the, the, the far fulfillment, the fuller and um, more real fulfillment that we see in the birth of Christ. Um, so that, that near fulfillment being um, Isaiah's son and the far fulfillment being the birth of Christ. So in verse 17, we get the bad news. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over your young men. Wait, no, I'm sorry. Um, Where was I? Yeah, chapter 7 and verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. You see, Ahaz, in his faithlessness, has been sending envoys to the king of Assyria, trying to, trying to garner favor with him. And, and all of this idolatry has been to, to achieve some alliance, some form of security. And God's saying, the, the, the one that you're going to for security is going to be the one to come here and destroy you. So the king of Assyria comes in wipes out the northern kingdom and then turns on Ahaz in the southern kingdom, comes through, sacks Jerusalem, carries off people to Assyria. And so this is the first exile. Um, God says, you should fear me. So now the judgment that Isaiah has been preaching about for years and years is near. It's close. God's been patient for all of these decades that Isaiah has been preaching and warning and calling Judah to repentance. But now that they are in open idolatry, he will not tolerate it. We said before, God is a jealous God. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I am the I am. That is my name and my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The NIV translates this phrase, I will not yield my glory to another. One of the key themes as well of Isaiah is that God will protect what belongs to him alone, the glory that is due to his name. Now it appears in verse 7, I mean chapter 7, or rather chapter 8, that Isaiah begins to struggle himself with fear and discouragement in light of Judah's enemies, in light of what is about to happen. Because God speaks directly to Isaiah. He speaks to him in verse 11 through 15 of chapter 8. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And then we see in verse 16 and 17, Isaiah's 
response to the truth of God's sovereignty over all of these things. He says, bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. So skip ahead to chapter 11 where we see the first promise of what and who Isaiah was waiting for. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. See, after the sacking of Jerusalem by Assyria and then when this, this, this promise of desolation uh, culminates with um, Babylon, Babylon coming in, Nebuchadnezzar coming in and destroying uh, Jerusalem and carrying off its people. After these things happened, the Davidic dynasty, hope for the Davidic dynasty that it would continue, seemed as unlikely as a, a stump of a tree that had been cut off. But this word of hope from Isaiah to the future audience of the exiles in Babylon is that when all hope seems lost and the tree that was David's line is reduced to a smoldering stump, out of that stump will come a shoot, one that will grow and mature and restore the tree and bear fruit, a descendant of David, a Messiah king to restore Israel. This passage is so exciting. Never before, until this prophecy in Isaiah, has there been a so clear a picture of the coming Messiah King. By comparison, everything before this has been whispers and hints and shadows, but in Isaiah, we begin to see clearly come into focus this Messiah King and what he will be like and what the results of his reign will be, peace and safety, salvation and restoration. Isaiah continues throughout the book to paint this picture, to bring into focus the one for whom the people would wait, the one in whom they would hope, this Messiah King who would deliver them. So chapter 12 is the song of deliverance, and I wish we had time to read it um, So maybe go back and read it yourself uh, after this. But um, the remaining chapters from this first division, chapters 13 through 35, are the final part of the division. And they contain messages of judgment as well to many foreign nations. And in doing this, God reminds us, the reader, that he is king over the whole world, over all the nations, And his holiness demands that all sin be dealt with. 
So then the second division that we won't have time to get into is in chapters 36 through 39. As we said, they're historical accounts, um, and they're taken from the life of Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. And amazingly, Hezekiah was a godly king who restored much of what Ahaz destroyed. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, We're told that Hezekiah served before the Lord with a faith that was beyond any king who had come before him. And it's truly amazing. So a very um, beautiful picture of God's uh, faithfulness and restoration in that, in that little historical interlude. But now we come to the final division, chapters 40 through, thir- through 66. So turn to chapter 40. These are the salvation prophecies. They deal primarily with prophecies about the peace and coming restoration. They were written by Isaiah, and they were directed primarily at post-exile Judah, this audience that would exist decades into the future, the exiles living in Babylon, and the remnant left in Israel. So these words of hope, of coming salvation from God, speak of his servant the Messiah King, who would secure that salvation. Um, let's see, where are we on time? About five minutes. All right, we'll see how quickly we can condense this last, last part of material. So let's look at the first couple of verses in chapter 40. We've dealt with so much of the weightiness and the heaviness of those prophecies of judgment. But in verse 1, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Can you imagine what this would have meant as an exile in Babylon? Enslaved, no home, no people, And you read this word of hope from God. Let's continue reading in um, verses 21 and 23. Um, No, I'm sorry. I'm a little... uh, not what I wanted to read. But chapter 43, I'm sorry, um, chapter 40 was written to inspire hope and faith in God's people, that they might not grow weary in waiting for his salvation, but that they would have faith, that they would renew their strength, and that they would mount up with wings as eagles. In chapter 42, we see another incredible portrait of the coming Messiah and what he would do. Let's read verses 1 through 2, or verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 49 say, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God begins to expand the promise of salvation to include the nations, the Gentiles. And that's good news for us. And as we progress through this division, through these salvation messages, you see continuing, you see building and growing and expanding like a beautiful symphony. Isaiah's vision of the Messiah King continues to unfold and to come into view and come into focus. And it culminates in chapter 52 and 53. So turn over there. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In chapter 53, this prophecy of salvation, we see detailed the staggering price that must be paid to secure that salvation. And it would be paid by the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Um, That was a a phrase that that came before this chapter. And it indicates that in the suffering of this servant, in the suffering of Christ the Messiah to secure salvation, the power of God is fully seen and fully revealed. The glory of God is displayed in his salvation. His holiness is demonstrated at the cross. And his love and his expression of love is astounding in the suffering of his servant. So in the chapters that follow, um, we see prophesied the future glory and the future uh, deliverance of Isaiah and of the nations. Um, And we continue to see the righteousness and the holiness of God put on display, demonstrated through judgment, through salvation, through desolation, and through deliverance. So I hope that um, we've uh, at least whet your appetite for some of the beauty and the majesty that is in this book. And there are so many layers of truth here, so much to be found. Um, so I encourage you, spend, spend time in Isaiah and it will, it will give you a bigger view of God and of his glory. We're dismissed.